Welcome back to Insights at Anything 2022. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, we're traveling deep into the minds of industry experts and influencers to gain insights and perspectives on challenging issues uh, and opportunities. Um, I'm your host for today, Catherine Ogilvy from Wood. Um, in this episode, we're going to discuss how the Middle East become a global hydrogen player. Uh, we'll be covering the key steps to maximise the region's hydrogen potential, the technology commercialisation required and the likely impact of COP27 on future strategy. Um, in this episode, I'm joined by uh, Daryl Wilson, Executive Director of the Hydrogen Council. Welcome, Daryl. Pleasure. Um, and with me also is, would you like to introduce yourself, my fellow colleague from Wood? Yeah, no worries. Uh, Stuart Searle, Business Development Director for Energy Transition, um, so covering everything from hydrogen, but also decarbonisation, carbon capture and renewables. Fantastic. Thanks both for taking the time today. Um, hydrogen has a role to play in changing global energy, as we all know. Uh, the global energy model could contribute to reducing at least 20% of the world's CO2 by 2050. Great enthusiasm continues to surround the development of clean hydrogen, with some calling it the new oil of the 21st century. If the Middle East continues to act proactively, it could become a global leader in providing clean hydrogen for application in sectors such as steel, cement, shipping, aviation and aluminium sectors. However, the actual market is still minimal and there is a long way to go. What are the key steps to maximising this for the region? Daryl, yourself, I throw to you first. Well, this is, uh, this is my first time at Atapec and uh, it was fascinating to attend the opening ceremonies yesterday and listen to the energy minister of the UAE and also uh, Saudi Arabia talk about uh, their outlook. Um, the theme was maximum energy, minimum emissions. Um, and I think if, if indeed this region is to lead in hydrogen, uh, then the strategic leadership commitment is the first point. And here uh, we're hearing from the leaders that there's a, a strong acknowledgement that as we uh, tap the energy sources for the future, they're going to have to be minimal emission. So hydrogen plays a key role and repeatedly in that opening ceremony, uh, there was mention of hydrogen many, many times, much more than I anticipated. Uh, so I think the leadership is there. And then the next step is action. Uh, and I've sat on panels in the last uh, 24 hours with some of the senior leaders in the industry uh, here in the Middle East. Uh, and they're discussing the, the need to uh, heavily decarbonize the midstream production. Uh, so today, hydrogen uh, for uh, production of fossil fuels all comes from uh, uh, non-decarbonized sources. And some companies are committing that 50, 60 percent of the hydrogen that they will use in the future will come from decarbonized or low carbon sources. So uh, I, the commitment to action seems to be there. Uh, certainly the capability to launch very large-scale projects uh, is in this region. This is the center of the energy universe in a lot of ways. And, and indeed, we have the largest hydrogen project in the world ongoing uh, with NEOM in this region at two gigawatts uh, of capacity. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, so leadership commitment, action, and project follow-through 
it all seems to be happening, which is very encouraging. Yeah. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think I'd add to it and say that obviously the Middle East is uniquely positioned with this opportunity for hydrogen production, not only in terms of the renewable energy uh, potential that it has in this region with obviously excellent solar capabilities, um, but also obviously the potential for integration of hydrogen technology or cleaner hydrogen technology into existing operations and brownfield upgrades um, for sort of blue ammonia and blue hydrogen, for example. Um, I know obviously in the opening ceremony, we talked about removing the colors from the hydrogen uh, spectrum and just talking about low carbon hydrogen instead. Um, and I think the Middle East is perfectly positioned to um, be the forefront of that. Mm, great. Um, what do you think are the key technologies that can best grow investment and commercialization of the region's natural resources? So just recently, the Hydrogen Council released uh, what we call the trade flow study. So we looked at all of the renewable energy resources around the world, wind and solar. We looked at the fossil fuel sources and the ability to do carbon capture and sequestration. And it turns out this is a very vital region for producing low cost, low carbon hydrogen. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, next to Chile, it is the lowest cost region for hydrogen from the natural endemic resource, both renewable uh, resources and the addition of carbon capture and storage to fossil fuel sources. So when you recognize the appetite for Europe to uh, consume a large amount of low carbon hydrogen uh, as part of their decarbonization plan and the uh, the proximity of this region uh, by pipeline uh, to Europe in particular, um, you understand that that there's a there's a market, there's a demand, there's a low pr uh, cost of production opportunity this will go together and uh and i think um places like C qatar oman the uae saudi arabia all are beginning to see the potential for uh shipping low carbon hydrogen especially to europe hmm. and i think there's also there's a there's a good opportunity there to combine energy security and energy transition as well um so when we're talking about um, enhanced oil recovery, for example, we can look at blue hydrogen production and then utilizing the captured CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, thereby justifying your investment case by the additional, uh, obviously, optimization of the performance through the EOR, um, but also improving the energy transition side of things by the production of blue hydrogen. So, um, yeah, I think those couple really well together and obviously the Middle East well placed for that. And leading on from what you said before about NEOM, for example, um, could you talk me through a little bit about NEOM as a case study in utilizing hydrogen or for someone I, who doesn't know a lot about it? But such so it's interesting project. as a case study, it's it's an example of bold corporate action. So, um, you know, the, the some of the largest production uh, of hydrogen recently have been kind of at the 20 to 200 megawatt scale. This is an order of magnitude larger at two gigawatts. So the, the conviction and courage to take action and go immediately to very large scale is a distinguishing element of the project. Uh, they will use uh, principally uh, wind and solar energy, but especially solar energy uh, to run electrolysis, to produce hydrogen, uh, and then convert that into ammonia. Uh, ammonia is a very interesting hydrogen carrier because we can transfer and ship a large amount of hydrogen uh, when it's in the form of ammonia. Uh, so their interim product will be ammonia to move those uh, decarbonized hydrogen attributes into Europe, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what impact 
will COP27 have on the Middle East development as it aims to become a global hydrogen leader? Perhaps you'd like to kick us off with that. Yeah, I think I think COP27 will only help the Middle East um, in terms of its hydrogen development, and I think COP28 even more so. Um, I think the the key difference between COP27 and 28 compared to 26 is that um, integration of the developers and the operators themselves, where previously they've been kept very much at arm's length and almost held away from the conversation, whereas now, um, obviously, the intention to bring them into the table and make COP26 the, the implementation COP, um, you need the people that will be implementing the projects at the table to have that discussion. Um, so I think, obviously, that only benefits the Middle East, um, and that will follow through into COP26, and hosting it here, I think, is obviously very important. Uh, for not only the region, but also the operators that will be, by necessity, present at the table. Yeah, I attended COP for the first time last year in Glasgow, a, a, a great event and well-hosted, uh, but it's a fascinating experience. It's, it's like this gigantic set of parallel conversations with 30,000 people going on for multiple days. Uh, and I think the impact of that is it, it, it's tremendously engaging. Uh, so to have this region uh, participate two successive years in that conversation, uh, to have the eyes of the world on on what's going on in this region, and the uh, and the the impetus to keep down this path of, of decarbonizing our energy sources, all that coming together, I think is is a, a very instrumental impact of COP. Uh, so I, I think it's uh, a very fortunate set of circumstances to have these two COP events both held in the Middle East area. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Um, for me, it's important for this process to continue and to accelerate. Um, compared to other clean tech segments, um, hydrogen is obviously a confident growth area. Uh, the industrial sectors that rely on fossil fuels for feedstocks and process heat today cannot obviously readily switch to any other low carbon option and cannot be served by electrification. Daryl, do you have any comments to that? So uh, we've got a big challenge ahead of us. Bill Gates says that it's the biggest change project humanity's ever undertaken, and that's the case. Um, and so there's there's a need for a whole array of solutions in virtually every sector in the economy to somehow start the process of change. Um, so I. With so much of our energy today tied up in molecules, um, it's very, very important that the fossil fuel industry participants, who are the arms and the legs of getting the energy job done today, they need to go through this transition with us. Um, there are some people who like to demonize this sector and said, you know, you should all just stop and go away. Um, I'm not sure I share that view because if we really need to scale these new technologies at, at the necessary pace, and we're all concerned now with a sense of urgency about pace, then we need the skills in the sector to mount the projects at the scale that they typically do. Hmm. Uh, you know, I ran a, a startup uh, hydrogen technology company for 13 years. It took us 25 years to get to the point of having, a, you know, a scaled industrial product hmm. at the level that's now required. Um, and for that to be happening repeatedly at the scale that's required to get the decarbonization job done, we need all the skills of the oil and gas industry to be participating and, and, and lending their strength uh, from a human resource and competency point of view to help us. Can I just pick up on the skills point? Um, obviously, you've got younger generations who are interested, engineers who want to you know, get a good job for the future. Um, how do you think we could attract them to the oil and gas slash energy 
industry in the future. I, I remember, I, I won't mention names here, but I remember a career Please change I, I met, <laughs> I, I made at one point and I was moving into an industry that is pretty dark. Um, and, and most people looking at my history and career said, what'd you do that for? You know, why would you go there when you have kind of a green heart? Uh, another friend helped out when he said, you know, the darker it is, the bigger difference you can make. Uh, and I think, um, again, the the centers of competence in execute, executing large scale projects are in the traditional energy sector. Um, and so I think um, it's fine to be starry eyed and go after working in new startups and, and new gee whiz technology. But frankly, the people who can make the biggest difference are the people who are doing the biggest job today. Yeah. And so I, I think young people should not shy away from this sector, but be part of the change and, and to work that change from the inside. Um, the, the learning, uh, the, the, the scale of, of uh, challenge involved in this sector is unequaled elsewhere in the, in the world. Uh, and you can, in fact, make a bigger difference inside than outside the sector. So maybe, that, maybe that's a tagline for the future, make a, make a bigger impact from the inside. Yeah, no, I would, I would echo that. And I would also say that just because you're not necessarily working on any transition projects doesn't mean you can't be focused on decarbonization. Um, and that should be the mindset we have that every project we do, whether it's for green hydrogen or whether it's for conventional oil and gas, we should be focusing on decarbonization and making it the most efficient we can during the design, during the execution and during the operation. Um, and so effectively everyone becomes a decarbonization engineer, whether you're working in conventional energy or energy transition. So what, what would you say to a young graduate looking at joining the industry? I would say focus on decarbonization because <laughs> it's going to be in everything we do. Um, yeah, whatever sector you're working on, uh, whatever stage of the life cycle, project life cycle you're working on, um, decarbonization will be a key driver. Um, we should be looking at the CO2 equivalents of um, every single project we do in the same way we look at CapEx and OpEx cost estimates. Um, when you book a flight now, you see the CO2 equivalents of the flight. We should be implementing that on projects at an early phase and taking that through the life cycle. Mm. Um, finally, is there any other comments you'd generally like to make on, I suppose, your uh, learnings or what you've noticed at ADPEC in relation to the topic of hydrogen? Yeah, coming here on Sunday, I wasn't sure what to expect. It's way bigger than I anticipated. Uh, and this decarbonization theme has settled in much more deeply than I anticipated. Uh, I, you know, if you simply listen to the media about this sector, it's... Uh, it's not a pretty story, but when you're sitting here, you realize uh, that the sense of urgency and commitment around decarbonization ha has arrived. Um, I dare say if I was here three years ago, I would not heard nearly as much about hydrogen as I'm hearing today. Uh, so there's there's a level of, of excitement and anticipation and frankly, optimism that I might not thought I would find here. That's a well, that's a lovely sentiment to walk away with. What about yourself? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's from some of the projects we've already discussed, particularly in the Middle East, the the desire to produce hydrogen is clearly there. Um, I think we need to balance that with obviously the, the demand as well. And I think um, policies and legislation and incentives around that can, can support that process. Um, but I think once we have that balance and that is, we're moving towards that, um, then hopefully we can start seeing some of these projects come into fruition and um, yeah, benefit everyone. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're both very important and busy people. Um, but no, thank you for joining us. 
Um, well, that brings us to a close for our session, insight session from Adipex, sorry, 2022, where we explored whether the Middle East had become a global hydrogen player and when it will actually happen. Um, I've enjoyed our discussion. Um, thank you to both of you. And for listening, finally, please take the time to access our other podcasts at woodplc.com and follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.